sometimes I've spoken with people who've gone through great trials or suffering and they're struggling to keep their faith in God. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe it's been hard for you lately. You suffer and, and, and you pray and, and you pray and that, that God would help you and, or heal you or heal your loved one or, or you ask God to change your difficult circumstances and he doesn't. And when you pray, first slide up please, Caleb. And when you pray and pray and nothing changes and the suffering goes on, you keep waiting. We can be tempted to give up. To give up praying, give up trusting, give up believing. Maybe you know what that's like. You know others who have experienced that. Maybe you think, after all I've done for God, I deserve this. Maybe you think, after all my sins, I don't deserve this. That's why God's not answering me. Maybe you're feeling that God is so far away from you. How do we find the strength and the will to keep coming to God, keep trusting in him with our needs? That's what we're thinking about today. It's important to remember what we looked at last week as we come to this passage. I remember the Pharisees had come to Jesus and said that your disciples don't ceremonially wash their hands before they eat. And they were implying that Jesus and his disciples were unclean, unacceptable to God. But Jesus came back at them and said, no, you've disobeyed God's commands. You're unclean before God. And we saw how it's sinful words and actions that come from our defiled hearts that makes us unclean before God. And only Jesus, by his sinless life, his death and resurrection, can clean and forgive us. And now we meet someone who was viewed by the Jews as unclean, especially unclean. We meet someone who was a great distance from God. And that's our first point today, great distance. Again, understanding the historical background is important here. In Genesis 15, God promised Abraham that his descendants will be given the land of the Canaanites, Hittites and others. Jen just read for us earlier, Exodus 34, about how God again repeated his promise to give the Israelite people the land of the Amorites and Canaanites if they will obey or observe what I command you. And the issue wasn't one of racism as such, but God jealously caring about his people so much that he didn't want them to be lured away by the Canaanites' false religion. But the books of Joshua and Judges, they tell us that the Israelites failed to trust and obey God and drive out the nations. Israel's enemies, Canaanites, continued to live in the promised land. And if we fast forward to Jesus' day, Canaanites and other non-Jews, Gentiles, they still live among the Jews. And so coming back to verse 21, Matthew 15, verse 21, we're told that Jesus withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. On the map, uh, look at the blue arrow. He's heading northeast. 
Tyre itself is in modern, it's on the coast, it's in modern day Lebanon. It's about 55 k's from the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus has traveled quite a great distance, not all the way to the town, but into the area. The point is, he's gone into a Gentile area. And a Canaanite woman, we're told, from the region came and kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. So this Gentile, who Jews would never eat with, is on top of that also a Canaanite. Maybe it's comparable to the way Germans were viewed or even treated after World War I, World War II. So this woman, before she starts, she's at a great distance relationally from the Jews and and a great distance from Jesus, the, the Jewish Messiah. And so for the disciples, it's, it's not surprising to them, surely, that Jesus ignores this woman, this Canaanite woman. And when she keeps crying out, the disciples want Jesus to tell her to go away. Just She's just annoying. And Jesus responds, verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Here Jesus, though, is speaking a reality, not an insult. He came as Israel's promised king. And as the Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, salvation is first to the Jew and then the Gentile. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sent the 12 disciples out on mission and he said, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That will soon change, as we'll see, but but at this point, the Jews Jews still wanted to keep the Gentiles at a, a great distance from them. Jews sometimes called Gentiles dogs. So we're a little surprised when Jesus says to this woman in verse 26, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But the Greek word for dog that Jesus uses here is not the word for filthy, feral dogs. It's the word for a little dog, a house dog. May we say a pet dog is my family's dogs who do get some scraps from our table. Maybe Jesus said these words with a smile or with compassion in his eyes. We don't know. Still, Jesus is making a real distinction between God's chosen people, Israel, and everyone else. The Israelites are compared to the children of the family and the Gentiles, and this Gentile woman, to the pet dog. And yes, it's humbling. And most of us love our dogs if you, if you have them or have one. But our children matter more to us than our dogs. Again, this language, it highlights the great distance from this woman and the Jews, the great distance between her and Jesus. And so she can't come and make any claims or demands upon him. And yet she comes to him still. She comes seeking mercy from Jesus with great faith. Our next point. 
So despite being viewed as unclean, unworthy, she approaches him because, yes, she's desperate, but she also knows he's a great saviour. Her daughter is suffering terribly from uh, a demon, suffering severely, and she comes to Jesus seeking mercy from the, the salvation. So she's seeking salvation from him, salvation from the evil. Verse 22, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Mercy is something you get that you don't deserve. It's asking for something you don't deserve. She doesn't deserve mercy. None of us do. But she comes to the one who can help, help and save, and she calls him Lord, the son of David. Somehow she knew from the Hebrew scriptures or the Jewish religion that the Jews were waiting for their Messiah, their promised king and rescuer. And the promised king was going to be a a descendant of King David. It's a promise worth memorizing in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Promise there that a king would come from David's line who would rule over a kingdom forever. And this Canaanite woman believed it was Jesus. She was right. Last week we saw that the Jews, sorry, the Jewish leaders, they, oh, they knew their Bibles. Jesus accused them of being blind. They knew what the verses said, but didn't understand or believe them. They were the blind ones. You remember what when Jesus called the Pharisees the blind guides? You follow them, you'll only fall into a pit. Jesus calls them blind guides. They they failed to confess Jesus as Lord, and yet this Canaanite woman does. Here we have a Gentile who sees truly, who's heard about, knows who Jesus is, the Lord and promised King who saves and delivers people. She knows he is a great saviour. She comes to him seeking mercy. She won't be dissuaded or put off. I think most of us would have been put off by the disciples' comment. But in verse 22, she keeps crying out over and over, even when she's ignored, and even when the disciples want her gone. We don't know why the why Jesus ignored her at first. As he says, his priority is to the people of Israel at at this stage. But in the light of what happens, I suggest that it was to test her faith, to test her commitment and determination to come to him. We may even say that while Jesus may sound harsh here, he's not wanting to destroy her faith, but draw her out, reveal her faith. She's like the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. Do you remember that parable that Jesus teaches so that we will pray and pray and not give up? She's like that. Verse 25, she comes and kneels before Jesus and says, Lord, help me. When Jesus says it's not right, take the children's bread and throw it to the dog, she replies, yes, Lord, 
yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And this woman proves and displays her her faith in these words, her faith that Jesus can powerfully provide and heal and save her daughter. But more than that, she knows that the master Jesus has so much grace that there's even enough for her. Jesus' words in verse 26 don't mean that there's nothing left for anyone else. There will remain grace for Gentile dogs like this woman, like us. The Jews can be provided for and there's enough scraps for others too. That's how she understood it. She shows her faith in that. God is so great, so generous that there is more than enough for us all, enough grace for us all. The grace of God's Son isn't limited, doesn't run out. It can meet Jews and non-Jews in their need when they come to Jesus. And he says in verse 28, Woman, your faith is great. I don't know how I skipped forward lots of slides in. Your, your faith is great. And it was done as she desired. At that moment, her daughter's healed. How amazing. No doubt she was also, by faith, saved, reconciled to God. She not only, I'm sure, received eternal life, but in that moment, not that Jesus says it, but she's actually been drawn into relationship with God too, welcomed into his family, just as we are by faith. And what's really interesting is how this woman's great faith is sandwiched between the disciples, Jewish disciples' little faith. Back in chapter 4, when Jesus came to his fearful disciples, walking for chapter 14, Jesus came to his disciples They were scared because, remember, they thought he was a ghost walking on the water and Jesus goes out on the water to him. He he walks on the water towards Jesus, but he takes his focus off Jesus. He sinks. Again, Jesus saves him and he says, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Apostle Peter of little faith. And then in chapter 16, the very next chapter, Jesus will say to all the disciples, You of little faith. It's a sandwich between the Jews' lack of faith. Have this Gentile Canaanite woman's great faith. Reminds us of the centurion, the Gentile centurion back in Matthew chapter 8, if you'll remember that like 10 months ago. He came to Jesus saying, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof But just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus is amazed and says, truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel such great faith. So great a faith. And so his faith and the Canaanite woman's faith, they're like a sign that that points to what is to come. In Jesus' life and earthly ministry, he focuses on the Jews, that he would die and rise again 
Do you remember the final words, his final words in Matthew's gospel, go and make disciples of all nations? And in Acts chapter 1, just before he ascends to heaven, he says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 10, Peter himself is going to learn that the Gentiles are no longer unclean and need to be evangelized so they can be saved too. So God's plan for the good news about Jesus, it's to go out and save the non-Jewish people of the world. In fact, that's been God's plan from the start. In Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that through his offspring, uh, through his line, blessing would come to all peoples. And then later on in the Old Testament, God sent Jonah to save Gentile Ninevites. Isaiah promised then that the Messiah would come and be a light to the nations. And then in Matthew's Gospel, right at the start, In Jesus' genealogy, do you know that three Gentile women are named? Jesus' own ancestry, Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Jesus is then worshipped by foreign wise men. He's praised. He has praised the faith of the Gentile centurion and now this Canaanite woman. And the gospel finishes with his command to take the gospel to all nations. Save people everywhere. And so in Matthew 15, where we are, it's not the plan yet. It is the plan. It's just a matter of time. And so this woman's great faith in a great saviour is a sign of things to come. She symbolises the enormous future response to Jesus from people around the world, even us. And we are the the fruit, the, the recipients of God's saving and gracious sovereign plans. We've come to the Lord seeking mercy, haven't we? Salvation we don't deserve. He saved us too. Uh, But if the Lord Jesus has not saved you, not yet he can. He can be your Lord and Saviour. You need only turn to him and Trust in him. Lois Lane in Superman Returns, 2006 movie, may have said, the world doesn't need a saviour, neither do I. Friends, we do. Do need a saviour. One who will save us from sin and death. One who will save us from the devil and the judgment to come. And Jesus can. No no matter who you are or where you're from, no matter what you're like or what you've done, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Promised in Scripture, Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And no, you don't need great faith. Even little faith is enough to save if it's in the great Saviour. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will 
not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, but indeed be shown mercy and be saved. And brothers and sisters, we who know we've been saved, I hope that you're struck by and amazed by God's sovereign plans and the abounding grace of God and how they're being foreshadowed and worked out here in Matthew 15 and how they're being worked out by God over hundreds and thousands of years to save even us or our good even. We don't deserve it. So praise God that Jesus came to save Jews and Gentiles too. Praise God for the scraps from the master's table, the crumbs that have come and saved even us. Be humbled. Be thankful. My final point is great deeds. In verse 29, Jesus moves on and returns to the Sea of Galilee. Mark chapter chapter 7, a parallel passage, tells us he's still in a Gentile region beside the Sea of Galilee. Crowds are coming to him, all kinds of disabilities, injuries, and in compassion, Jesus heals them all. Just like with the Canaanite woman, Jesus does not turn away people who come to him in their need. With great deeds, great miracles, the crowd saw those unable to speak talking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they gave glory to the God of Israel. Think about that for a moment. Bones and muscles, ligaments and tendons, organs and tissues, Restored, reformed, instantly by the great Lord Jesus Christ. And in response to his great deeds, the people watching were amazing, gave glory to the God of Israel. That language suggests that they're Gentiles glorifying the one true and living God. And God deserves to be praised, doesn't he, when he has great deeds. He deserves to be praised and glorified by people today too, even by us. When he heals in a great way or even in God's mercy, you recover from COVID, from the gastro that you had. Always deserves the glory. So how are you going at giving God the glory for the mercy that he shows you? But maybe you're wondering, does God even still do miracles today and answer prayers in amazing ways? Yes, he does. The abundant miracles performed during the lives of Jesus and his apostles, they were a unique time in salvation history. And yes, heard many testimonies, read many accounts of of Great miracles being done, particularly in places where the gospel hasn't gone forth previously. And yet I've seen the Lord heal 
and answer prayers in miraculous and, and marvelous ways. A number of you have testified that to me as well. I was talking to someone just this week who experienced a wonderful answer to prayer regarding a tumour and the role of their faith in that. They give glory to God. Let me share another true story. It's about 2010. A Turkish man, sorry, a Turkish family was concerned for Sayit, a 40-year-old relative who was mentally disturbed and constantly paced the streets of their town. In a desperate attempt, the family rented a car and brought him to a community of believers in a larger town and to Ali, who was the Turkish pastor there. Sayit was filthy. He had a long, messy beard, urine-stained pants, fingernails over an inch long. He couldn't talk. He was not in his right mind. They asked Ali if he could do anything to help. He replied, Jesus can. You must believe that he can. They said, if we didn't believe he could help, would we have driven five hours to see you? Ali went up to the bearded man, gave him a big hug, prayed for him. Sayyid then amazed them by becoming coherent, speaking for the first time in five years. A week later, Ali got a call to say that Sayyid was still cleaned up, eating well, no longer wandering the streets and still in his right mind. Glory be to God. But God doesn't always give us what we ask for when we pray, does he? Even when we, even when we persist in prayer and don't give up. And yet Jesus is still the, the great saviour, risen and d- dead, risen, active, at work by his spirits. He still has all authority. He still knows what is best. And the great deeds which Christ can and still does may not always be giving us what we ask for. Maybe his great deed is sustaining your faith, your faith and trust, like in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, so that you endure even while going without I'd like to share two stories, people trusting in their great saviour, even when the hardship continues. Sheridan Voise is a radio host and an author, and in an interview he said, I think we're often discipled by Disney more than we're discipled by the scriptures. We're so used to the happy ending, and yes, we know there's going to be a battle, but we'll get there in the end. He and his wife, Merrin, tried for years to have children, but they could not conceive. In a 2017 interview, he said, anyone who's been through a broken dream has already read the seven steps to a better life type book and found they're lacking. I want to be really sensitive about how the cross shows that the worst events can be redeemed into the greatest event in history. 
The worst experience that comes to us can, in the hands of God, be turned into something very surprising for the benefit of not just ourselves, but primarily for others. End quote. Challenge is to trust God in those moments, isn't it? Sam was a boy at my last church. He was born with Down syndrome. He died 10 years ago at 17 years of age. His mum, Amorag Schwartz, wrote about losing her 17-year-old Samuel while also having precariously ill parents and another son with life-threatening health problems all at the same time. Sam's cancer kept returning with relapse after relapse until he died, that Sam had wonderful, a wonderful, simple faith in the Lord Jesus. Morag, his mum, shares of being very prone to worry and anxiety and fear. And yet in her words, and I quote, I can say with genuine conviction that my hope is in God who does not fail me. And I've proved him over and over again. I cannot say that I've reached my greatest desire, which is to love God without wavering, without fear, and unmoved by calamity or death. I know, I know perfect love will displace those fears. And God will keep me in perfect peace when I keep my thoughts fixed on him. She says part of my journey from Pentecostal and confused wilderness to reforms has been the embracing of a God who is too great to be contained or explained, who does not conform to our very human and erroneous, that is wrong, notions of how things should be done for nice, earnest, Bible-believing folks, who does not owe us an explanation for why our child is born deformed, or disabled, or ill unto death. It's an indescribable blessing and joy, though, to be able to state and feel that God does as he chooses, since his knowledge and providence are are way beyond my comprehension. Morag says, I was convinced that when Samuel died, I would lose my sanity. And there were many times when Both sons were seriously ill in hospital at the same time. Then I found myself more consciously, desperately dependent upon God than I manage at other times. I discovered that while we grit our teeth and grasp onto him, God, meanwhile, is holding onto us. And his grip is the one that matters. His is the one that makes ours feeble and fleeting by comparison. I know that when we ask and pray and don't get what we long for, that it's hard. May God be glorified when he does answer prayers in amazing ways. But I think... The Canaanite woman 
as well as Sheridan and Morag, they all highlight for us great faith in a great Savior. May your faith be in the great Savior. Don't give up trusting in him. Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray that you might forgive us for the times when we forget who you are, when we let go of faith in you, when our faith is little and you would desire it to be stronger. Please, by your spirit, strengthen and grow our faith. For any of us here listening or watching who have not been saved, received the mercy that is offered to us in Jesus, we pray that they would call out to the Lord and be saved. We pray, Father God, that you might grow our faith even when we keep praying. Help us to persevere and endure. And Lord, we pray that by your grace that you might even strengthen our faith by our trials and by our waiting. And Lord, whether it's miraculous answers to prayer or whether it's enduring faith, may you be glorified in those things and in our lives. So, Father, I, we commit ourselves, I commit my brothers and sisters to you, to your love and grace and mercy. In Jesus' name.